Osborne? Osborne Cox? Yes. Uh, who is this? Um, this, um, is this Osborne Cox? Good Samaritan. I'm sorry I'm calling at such an hour, but I thought you might be worried. Worried? About the security of your shit. What on earth are you talking about? Who am I speaking to? Uh, I, your files, your... Uh, the documents. I know these documents are sensitive, but I am perfectly willing to give back to you your sensitive shit. You know, at a, at a time of your choosing. What documents are you talking about? Osborne Cox? Yes, yes, this is... Hello, it's Osborne Cox. Who the fuck are you? What documents are you talking about? Okay. The bureau chief in Belgrade, we all call Slovak the Butcher. He had very little report with his staff and his dispatches. Rapport. Very little rapport with his staff, fucking moron. How did you get this? Who Don't the fuck blow a gasket, Osborne. We have. It's not important Way where. Over your fucking head. I don't know who the fuck you are, but you have no idea what you're doing. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Generation Lost, the show about movies with Bryn and Jeremy. What's uh, going on? It's hi. the Christmas season. <laughs> it's it's Hanukkah, actually. It's it's. Oh yeah. We're, Not till yeah. tomorrow, right? Yeah, but when this comes out, it'll be Hanukkah. Oh, you're right. Sorry. We'll be it'll in be the thick of it. In this the is middle of Hanukkah. Deep, knee deep Hanukkah shit. <laughs> right and smack dab in the middle of the eight days. Yeah. It's eight days, right? I know yes, that's from Adam. Couldn't Sandler. possibly be more in the middle. <laughs> Yep. And today we have a guest, uh, Adam Johnson uh, of Citations Needed uh, fame. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for being here. I'm happy to, happy to be here. Thanks for having <laughs> me on. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, I'm a big fan of your show, and uh, I'm happy to talk with you about uh, this Coen Brothers movie. I think this is the first time we'll be talking about a Coen Brothers movie. I think you're right. Yeah, I don't think we've done one yet, which is shocking because they've come up in probably every episode. Yeah. <laughs> so it's awesome. I'm, I'm very excited to get to this. Uh, but first, uh, as we're wont to do, what uh, have we watched this week? Jeremy, what did you watch this week? So um, it being the Christmas season and all, um, I'm starting to kind of mainline uh, Christmas uh, content, you know, directly into my veins. <laughs> and uh, so this week... I wanted to watch Elf, but I didn't really have time to sit down and watch a whole movie. So I watched a uh, a Netflix making of thing that was like <laughs> about how they made Elf and like how it came together as a as a piece. Do you like Elf? Uh, yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's pretty fun. That's um, interesting. It's like a good um, vehicle for Will Ferrell, I think. Um, have I you seen that, Adam? I think I may be the only person alive who doesn't like Elf. And I'm not just saying that because I, <laughs> I, I sensibly hate everything. I really don't. <laughs> You're a big um, negative in fact, I In fact, I watched a Christmas movie myself this week uh, with my 10-year-old niece. We watched The uh, the Princess Switch 2. Ooh, The Princess uh, Switch. Which is part of the Princess uh, Switch um, uh, cinematic universe. Yeah. <laughs> where, I don't know, if you guys, have you guys watched any of the, like, is it like related Child. in any way to the Christmas Prince or whatever? It's the uh, no. Although I also watched the Christmas Prince with her the next day, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not just watching these on my own and saying I'm watching them with my ten-year-old yeah, niece. Yeah. To justify watching <laughs> sure, them, if you I watch them, yeah, yeah, ten-year-old niece. If I watch them on my own, I would, I would, I would fess up to it. I so they're basically like three distinct genres, right? There's, there's weird royalty, which is very much in vogue. Like half the stuff on Netflix involves royalty. Yeah. Um, 
the second is Christmas sort of Hallmark movies. And the third is kind of, uh, movies for, you know, children and young adults. And those three genres merge to create the, uh, what appears to be a never ending stream of Royal based Christmas movies for tweens on Netflix. (laughs) And I am now, I'm becoming familiar with, there's actually a sequel to the Royal, Wait, gosh, what was it called? Christmas the, Prince. The Royal, the Christmas Prince. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. There's the Christmas Prince too, where I think they get married. Yes, oh. and then um, I think there's even like a third and a fourth. They've made a lot of these now. How? But that didn't. I think that one came out this year or the year before. But there's only no, two Christmas pr- Prince is at least uh, two years old now. There's only two princess switches. Okay. And now and they're, 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 the, the second one has a trip has a triplet or a, a third. Two oh, it's like it's like twin. It's like the Prince and the Popper or something. Yeah, um, I'm 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 reluctant to admit that I actually quite enjoyed the Princess Switch Two, uh, <laughs> uh, switched again, um, Switch, switched switched harder. again. <laughs> you have to sort of measure it for what it is, but it's like a pretty decent, like dumb sort of kid comedy that's um, sort of everyone sort of involved seems to be enjoying themselves, and it uh, and it um, it has a little caper subplot. It's 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 yeah. it's, it's, it's it's decent as far as those things go. Now with um, Elf, I would have thought that that movie was be a little bit too twee for you, Jeremy. It is, um, <laughs> and I don't disagree with you on that take. I think that there's a good amount of it that I tune out for. Okay. But that's you know that's to be expected with Christmas media. I feel there is sort of a like a chaff that you kind of like write off to mm-hmm. texting time and stuff. <laughs> Um, just what's great about the season, you know, you'd yeah. only really have to pay attention to like a, a certain percentage of the movies. Well, that's, mm-hmm. I think that's part of the appeal of the rise of the Hallmark movie. In, in mm-hmm. addition to sort of being, um, you know, uh, their, their comfort food, but there really is a sense that you do not have to actually pay attention. And I think that in a, in, in a media environment where people increasingly are not paying attention, mm-hmm. it's sort of just on, you know, it's like Starbucks. It's, it's exactly, yeah, exactly. More than, a, uh, than an actual <laughs> experience. But um, my only beef with Elf, to be clear, just to clarify, I, I, I like just I didn't get it. I don't think it's like a bad movie. I'm not hostile to it. Like I, don't, <laughs> I, I just I just think that um, you know I think James Con totally phones it into that movie. I feel like James Con is half paying attention, and I don't oh, sure, even yes, have his lines memorized. And it really does kind of affect <laughs> the movie because halfway through, I'm just distracted by the fact that James Con is clearly in this for a cash grab. And I was never a big James Con fan to begin with, which may be sacrilege, but. Um, um, I, I just thought that he, he was like giving about a 10% performance in, in that movie. And I don't, when I watched it, I was like, I, you know, people love this movie. I was like, this is supposed to be like, Oh, this is supposed to be this movie. People totally adore. And I found it like kind of grating and, and dull and, uh, and, and only half the cast really kind of showed up, but uh-huh. I don't know. I think, yeah, I, I think I don't it's really definitely like addressed. It's yeah. addressed in this thing I watched that James Caan, I mean, he's, he's like a tough guy actor and, and they were like, you're going to be a dad in this like cutesy twee Christmas movie. And he's like, sure, I guess. And I guess him and Will Ferrell <laughs> didn't really get along because Will Ferrell was like still early in his career and just kind of like goofing off on set. And James Caan was like super professional or whatever. I don't know. The point is that that all is aside. That's not really the part of this sort of shit that I'm that interested in. What I was interested in and Bryn, what you may be interested in uh-huh. is I didn't realize so much of Elf was practical effects that. Um, oh, yeah. The whole beginning when he's in the North Pole and he's around all the elves and he's like they're doing all the physical comedy with him being too big for everything and whatever. All of that, every single one of those things is forced perspective. That's so crazy. It's all done like old school <laughs> forced perspective in ways that like apparently the studio hadn't done in like 60 years. <laughs> and so they're like going back into like dusty old Hollywood books trying to find like, how do you set up a shot to do this? I don't really know. <laughs> they had a whole second line that was just setting up sets all night so that like in the morning... Uh, Will Ferrell and all them could like come in and shoot these scenes and then go home and then they would set up the next set overnight. It's fucking crazy. That's pretty charming. I I, I like that. I do remember that part being reasonably funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. L- Lord of the Rings had some had some CG force perspective combo that's actually like really impressive. Oh yeah, the fucking Hobbit shit. Yeah, that was a combination of CG and force perspective um, and miniature sets, but. Mm-hmm. The hobbits are always very funny in those movies because most of the time when they're around, they're being filmed pretty tight, you know, and they just look regular. 
and then every so often they like cut to a wide and you're like oh that's right they're, oh, they're tiny, tiny. <laughs> why are they so small they're so when tiny because <laughs> when aragorn and frodo are like face to face talking you're just imagining them the same size and then mm-hmm. it cuts out and he's like real small it's always funny <laughs> uh yeah so uh, i i remember liking elf okay uh until they start like chasing each other through city like central park on right. horses and stuff i don't remember i got confused and i was like i don't get this movie yeah but, uh, there's it's fine there's charming parts there's charming parts and will ferrell i mean he's just like a very electrifying performer it kind of is hard not to like him for me I've at always, least i've always been weirdly I, i've only recently as i've grown up like started to become like easy on will ferrell really yeah i I, when i was a kid i i thought he was so unfunny i could never watch him Uh, you know i I, i'm this i was the same way this was this was one of those i felt like i was going crazy because everyone loved like he was funny (laughs) on snl but like movies like Step Brothers and anchorman i couldn't finish yeah and i I tried go back and rewatching them thinking i was maybe it was just like a disposition thing but I, I generally think that like a certain that certain genre of comedy of like yeah mug to the camera pseudo improvised mm-hmm. um, kind of very self aware comedy kind of took off like a social contagion and I don't necessarily think it it, it was like my preferred brand but yeah. um, but I liked him on SNL a lot I thought he worked in this sort of sketch format and then he's been good in other movies and he's, he's yeah. a good dramatic actor but the whole like. I'm doing a joke now, and this is a joke. And there's, here's this line written by a 27 year old NYU grad screenwriter, and it's <laughs> right. like it's it's very much like self aware that I, I fucking do not like movies like that. Yeah, absolutely, and I agree with you on that era of Will Ferrell in particular, of like yeah, Anchorman and um, uh, Talladega Nights and all that yeah, sort of I shit. Don't, I don't get it that. all it wasn't never like... really did much for me, but this early era where it's like coming up to Elf because Elf is like his first big. Right. Movie that he's the guy of, right? Oh, he's in yeah. like an ensemble of old school, but other than that, like Elf is it for him. That's his big starring movie. Before that, though, he is like a supporting actor in some of the best little things, like little <laughs> bit parts in like Zoolander and Austin Powers, like fantastic yeah. stuff. Night of the no, Roxbury. He's, he's great in those movies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Night of the Roxbury, of course. Fantastic. And it's not. It's, it's, <laughs> It's not that he's not. It's not that he's necessarily bad in those movies. I just think mm. that that particular genre of comedy making was was uh, um, a mistake. It was it <laughs> yes, was like a cultural. It, there was a sort of de- deviant branch that happened where we just we all decided that the funniest thing in the world was going to be having otherwise very talented actors kind of throw jokes at the screen and like one in seven would stick. Mm-hmm. And this and this was and it was quote unquote improv improvisation. And everything was a line. There was no real basis of the story. Actually, it's funny. I just rewatched National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Mm-hmm. I've never um, seen that. And I don't want to harken back to like the golden era of comedy because I think most of it's sort of been corrected. I think comedies don't have this as much anymore. But um, you look at that movie, and it was written by John Hughes. And uh, there's just like it's so you know it has a lot of heightened slapstick in it. But there's it's there's a basic story like there's a story the characters are like semi plausible they're obviously right, very right. heightened because it's a far it's a <laughs> yeah. farce right but like they don't they don't feel like they have to jam pack eighty seven jokes in every two minutes and like that that just you know for whatever reason we went through this phase where every 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 single line every single line had to be a joke there was no there was no like world building or character development really it was sort of just joke 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 jam down your throat and if you did that like movie it, you work were a buzzkill. Uh, like that's it's a good not, movie. Well, it's not as good as the first one. It's actually pretty good. I mean, it's it's um, it's got a, a few really good gags. Not every one of them lands, but I mean, uh, I mean, John Hughes, you know, yeah, yeah, that, that is not is not really going to write a bad comedy script. I don't think. Although I think there's probably some exceptions to that. So I may I may I may want to qualify that. <laughs> my, <laughs> but, my, um, my sister's always telling me to watch that movie. I should I should watch it this Christmas. It's a good it's a good Christmas movie. It's a uh, you know. Again, not every joke lands, but it's, it's got some really funny gags. Um, basically, he's the sort of he's described the, the whole the whole gag of all the Lampoon family movies is that he's the last family man. He's like super earnest and wants to impress his family. It's about it's it's basically a story about male inadequacy. He's always <laughs> he's always, he's always failing yeah. in some sense. His boss is like dumping on him. His kids don't like him, but he's like determined to make the perfect vacation or the perfect Christmas or the perfect trip to Las Vegas and. 
everything gets fucked up. A guy who's completely drowned in the idea of like a commercial father. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I don't, yeah, and it's not necessarily even satirical. It's just like, it's the gag. The gag is he's the only one apparently left in America who still has a kind of like, (laughs) you know, father knows best, 1950s, like I'm going to do this thing. And then everyone around him thinks he's a fucking idiot. But, you know, at the end he's, he's validated or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. But so that's the basic setup of those movies. I don't know if you've seen them. <laughs> I've seen the I've seen the the road trip one. I haven't seen the Christmas one. Yeah, it's the yeah. same sort of premise. Like he's in a, the perfect vacation, right? Mm-hmm. I had like the weirdest uh, fondness as a child for uh, Vegas Vacation. Oh, really? I love that movie. It's got yeah. it's quotable. It doesn't hold up as well, but it's got a ton of great gags. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it does not hold up very well. <laughs> as a kid, Papa it was, uh, was there. Yeah. yeah, no, that was uh, that was the later one. They kept changing the kids in all the movies. That was the one was also one of the gags. Yeah, that's the, the one where uh, Rusty is. Uh, is it Rusty? Is the son? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Rusty is uh, Ethan Embry. Oh, I love Ethan That's right. Embry. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, Nick Papa Giorgio from Yuma. Yeah. Yeah, Nick Papa Giorgio and he what is he like wins big on the slot machine and he, he gets well, like the, a hammer yeah, right. at the end. <laughs> the the gag at the end of the movie the movie is that Clark Wiswold cannot win a single bet. He loses every time he bets and he's like just a loser and he's and he pisses away like all their savings. But his <laughs> son can't lose. And he become he gets a he gets a fake idea. I think he's like sixteen or something in the movie. Yeah. And then he, uh, he basically wins like Ferraris and jackpots and hangs out with these mobster types. And it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but it's pretty funny. Fantastic film. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you watch this week, Adam? Um, I watched The Princess Switch 2 switched again. Yeah. And I watched... <laughs> but to be fair, I didn't, I, I didn't finish uh, uh, Christmas Prince. I, I, did, I missed the last 20 minutes due to a scheduling conflict. Uh-huh. <laughs> Although I did have I did have the ending paraphrased to me by my niece and my mother in law, um, so I got the gist. Uh-huh. And um, on that theme, I I am watching season two of The Crown. Okay, uh, is that the newest season, or is there is another no, season after four. that? Oh, they're four. Oh my god! Because I heard that um, they're and up to Thatcher now. Yes, I'm a sucker for The Crown, even though it is total monarchist propaganda. But I. I uh, <laughs> uh-huh. I, I, it's very pretty. It's a very well-produced show. Mm-hmm. Um, is it historically accurate in any uh, way? I think the general outlines are. They they take a lot of liberties because I think there's a lot we don't know. Sure. As far as I understand. Um, so the basic premise is like the, 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 the show is somewhat critical of like people within the monarchy. Like Prince Charles kind of comes off as a huge prick. Mm-hmm. Um, so does the queen mom, but like the queen herself is unassailable. And if you've ever watched the other Peter Morgan, uh, queen movie, the queen, uh, with Helen Miriam from 1990, uh, sorry, 2003 uh-huh. about the death of princess Diana. Oh God. And if you, if you ever read the pilot script for the crown, which I have it's very clear, <laughs> Peter Morgan is very much, uh, a huge fan of queen Elizabeth II. Mm. And, uh, it shows in the show. She's sort of unassailable. And the whole the whole theme of it, and the theme of the movie The Queen of Helen Miriam, is that they the the sort of burden you know heavy as the head, right? The, 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 which is actually the first somewhat very cliche quote of the Queen um, that they put in the, the like over a black the, screen or whatever over a black screen before it starts. <laughs> um, Gross. <laughs> and and it's sort of very clear that this that they've taken on this great burden for the good of of Britain. Um, and that they sort of reluctantly don't want to, and they're basically prisoners. They're kind of trapped in this sort of, you know, charade, oh, which, is, right. which is sort of true in a sense, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, but they're filthy rich and they, and they're and their idiot son hangs out with Jeffrey Epstein. So I really don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Adam, you can just go to Canada or whatever. And, and you know, that's fine. Now you're not in the Royal family anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Some, some have parlayed their brand into but they have, they, I think have to, the way the finances work are apparently quite complicated, but basically um, it's about them sort of being trapped in this role. And I don't know if you guys have seen the crowd, but it's, it's all very pretty and it, and it totally glosses over imperialism in a way that's bordering on uh, uh, malpractice. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> like especially the first seasons where they, you know, the, you had them. Yeah, so mal- in, in season two, where are you at? Like historically at that point? <sighs> I think the first season is like when she gets crowned in 1952 up until I think only like 57. And then season two goes from, I think roughly Eisenhower, um, Mm. the Suez Canal crisis. So I think probably 56, 57 to like 60, 
I think at the end, the Beatles are a thing, or maybe it was after <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's after Kennedy's assassinated. So I think it was up to 64. Oh, wow. And uh, 63, late 63, 64. And then I think season three is like the mid 60s to the the pilot episode of season four is Margaret Thatcher. So that would have been 79. Right. Jeremy, so, have you so, seen any of this? No, I've never seen any oh, of this. And then it goes up to the Gulf War, which was uh, January 1991, December 1990, January 1991. So uh, that's where we are now. I think there's going to be two more seasons. Um, that makes sense. I mean, there, so next season is going to be like a like a whodunit murder mystery uh, about well, Princess Di. Well, what, really what, what I really wanted to happen in The Crown was at the very end of season five, the end of 1997. And this is like the most sober, normie, like sort of BBC like show ever. And then at the very end of the very last shot of this of season four, they cut to the queen and she picks up a phone and she says, it's time to eliminate the bitch. Yeah, cuts, I was going to say, it's, a, it's like um, it cuts, it's like American it Sniper. It cuts to her on a roof with a fucking sniper rifle. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. No, they like go back and forth between Princess Di going through the tunnel and they cut to like a phone call and she's on the phone with MI6 and she's like, it's time. Like, uh, yeah. Commence Operation Roadkill. And you're like, holy fuck, they went there. Yeah, she um, just calls it in herself. Yeah, like this totally sober, boring, like, you know, down the middle Tory show. And then at the end, it just goes off the rails and becomes a fucking conspiracy show. And you're yeah. like, whoa. That would be great. Um, that would be cool. But they, they didn't do that. No, they they, uh, they presumably will handle that in season five. Although I don't know how Peter Morgan's going to avoid basically self-plagiarizing since that's actually the plot of the Queen. Right. Uh, his kind of film hagiography he made in 2003. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how they do it. But all I know is that people, um, Princess dies in the news again. So. Oh, yeah. Why is she in the news? Well, she's the featured. She's like the main thrust of season four of The Crown, oh, which oh. was released, uh, which came out like a month ago. Oh, okay. Whatever. So it's, it's not really as much about Thatcher as it is about Princess Diana. Uh, it's, well, I'd say it's equally both. Okay. Um, and Thatcher's horrors are like vaguely touched on, but not really addressed. And then she's right. presented as a feminist hero in a way that's a little bit. <laughs> 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 they, uh, they sort of address, they kind of address it to be fair in one of the episodes, right. you know, basically she's starved half the country. Um, and, but yeah. then again, once again, the queen is actually presented as a bulwark of liberalism and sort of sculpts her for both her support of apartheid and her anti, uh, her austerity, Measures, That's so crazy. Which I'm skeptical of something that happened. Although I did verify it. it is true that the Queen did publicly admonish her over apartheid, her support of apartheid South Africa. That actually did happen. I was shocked to learn that really did happen. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was very Queenish. It was sort of a leak to a leak to a leak, and and then she later denied it. But she did actually. That was the one time I think, at least so far in the in the uh, universe of the store of the of the series she she breaks protocol and, and asserts a political opinion um Damn. because one of the things the show does kind of capture is just how how much of a pariah south africa was by 1985 1986 mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. fact that like reagan and thatcher were pretty much the only main i mean you know we're pretty much the only, the only in Israel actually uh <laughs> were the only countries left that that Go uh, figure. Su- that supported them um, so yeah, when you're getting outflanked from the left by the queen, by a monarch, that's not a good sign. Pretty intense. That's not a sign. You probably need to revisit your political commitments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's worth watching, though. It's a it's a interesting show. I mean, its politics are important, but like you know, it's it's very pretty. I mean, it's the most expensive <laughs> show ever produced, right? It's, what? It's, like more than Game of Thrones? Yeah, I think season one was $150 million. Now they're what? about 130 million. They spend <laughs> they about got they computer spend, animated dragons uh, and shit. How much spend, is, what are they spending they spend it about on? 30, well, if you watch it, you'll see they have these, they'll have like a throwaway scene, like a 15 second scene in some like, you know, historical building with like 800 soldiers and a bunch of extra. I mean, it's, a, it's just, you oh, watch Jesus. it, it's clearly they spend a lot of money on the show. Wow. God. They do I not feel. Get, it's a prestige picture, so it's basically it was Netflix's kind of tentpole prestige thing, so they could get you know ra- try to rack up um, Emmys, which I, I think has thus far eluded them uh, with respect to best drama. But they um, they uh, it's so pretty and so well produced that you and, and you know Peter Morgan, like, if I'm not mistaken, is a playwright by trade, so it's very much two people in a room talking. 
but yeah. it's kind of interesting enough, and they do a really good job because of the of the of the great acting and the production values and the, and the wonderful art direction. They do a good job taking things that really ought not be that interesting, like you know, there's some someone used set the wrong fork down at a table or something at some state dinner, and they'll have like a 20 minute subplot on it, and you're like, this is not really interesting, <laughs> but because it's all it's it's an exquisitely it's Protestant it's an exquisitely Protestant show. I mean, it's a show about every major Protestant. Um, trait which is to say sexual repression mm-hmm. uh, passive aggression no one really says what they think uh, it's there's all there's there's this constant sort of non-stop gilbert and sullivan uh, uh commitment to duty and honor um <laughs> right uh, the problem is the show takes it seriously whereas i think most people in those worlds sort of are, are a little bit more cynical about it but mm-hmm. um no it's a very it, it really does capture the protestant um mindset of, of, of just constant repression and talking around things. I mean, no one has a, no one ever has a direct conversation in the show, <laughs> Being a which, pro- is, which is accurate. That is how, that is how Protestants yeah. talk to each other. <laughs> and doing active harm to Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they address that in the, uh, oh, do they? This season. Yeah. <laughs> Cause Lord, Lord Mountbottom is, uh, 1979 was ex- was blown up. He's one of the uh-huh. main characters in the show. He's killed by the IRA. Yeah, of course. Um, on a, on a boat, and, right? Yeah, and there's, about like like 10 sec- and there's about a 10-second attempt to sort of contextualize the violence, and then it goes into the sort of ho-hum, you know. <laughs> By the way. It, like, Peter, Mo- <laughs> Peter Morgan's very good at, like, a, a little bit of liberal box checking, and then right. he moves on to, like, ooh, you know, whoa, whoa, poor little rich girl, the, the, the show, basically, is what it is. Right. <laughs> well, that that sounds fun. Uh, all right, so this yeah. week I watched uh, a movie that uh, – no one I had never really heard of. Um, somebody I follow on Twitter, um, whose name is at Sir Corgant. His name is uh, Matume um, Gant. Uh, he recommended me this movie, or just said it was really good. It's called uh, Chameleon Street. Um, has anybody heard of that? <laughs> Chameleon Street? Like-, like Chameleon Street. Oh, Chameleon Street. Yeah. But it's um, pretty, uh, no, oh, no. it looks like um. So it's a movie. Um, it's like a gremlin that came out in 1989, the same year as uh, you know, do the right thing, and it won the uh, Sundance Film Festival, like the grand prize at the Sundance Fin Film Festival. But no one's ever heard of it uh, <laughs> that I've ever met. Uh, there's hardly any reviews of it on Letterbox or anything. Um, but it's a movie. Um, written and directed by a, a, a black director and actor named uh, Wendell B. Harris. And it's a, it's a true story about this guy named William Douglas Street, who was like the sort of, um, have you ever seen like Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah. It's sort of that kind of thing where he was just like continually pretending to be different people. Um, and he, he basically pretends to be a lawyer. He pretends to be a doctor. He performed like 30 per successful hysterectomies. He never went to college. Uh, he, this literally is just... Uh, it's basically um, Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, but, he does that in Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they're based off the same thing, but uh, this guy was... Um, he, he, uh, he, like, he got in trouble for um, br- blackmailing Willie Horton... Um, very strange, but this guy plays the, um, plays the main character. Um, but it's sort of this very, like very early nineties, late eighties sort of fever dream. There's a lot of weird, like, it's all like weird Dutch angles and kind of reminds me a lot of if, if do the right thing was much more surreal. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's sort of this, this kind of tumbling through this guy's life where just like there's a whip pan or like a train will come across the screen and you're in a different person you know like he's now a doctor or he's now a bartender or you know what i mean weird yeah. um so really kinetic really funny movie um and sort of uses this theme of this guy who pretended to be all these different people uh, to sort of examine this guy's perception of being a, a black man in America and like the way he has to sort of pretend to be different people to, uh, you know, sell himself or, or to get by. Um, 
right. in different situations. Like a code switching type of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because this movie feels so modern. It feels like it inspired so many people. It feels like a movie that really only filmmakers would have seen. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, yeah, I was really surprised to never have heard of it. Uh, and he hasn't made a movie since. Um, but it's great. It's a really interesting movie. Did he make anything before it? No. Weird. Yeah. He just like, he, he has. Did this and then fucked off. Well, he's apparently been working on a movie for like the past 14 years. Jesus Christ. Um, the only thing I know about it is that's called Arbiter Roswell. And it's, uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, chronicling the relationship between public opinion, the media, and the military industrial complex. Um, well, that's in my alley. Yeah. That's, <laughs> um, so I don't know what that's supposed to be. It's I a, mean, he appeared as an actor in Road Trip. <laughs> yeah, and out of sight. <laughs> and yeah, so he's just been working on some very intense stuff. But it seems like he kind of just, I, I was watching an interview with him where he basically said that nobody know, knew how to market it. And like all of the, like he talks about how Spike Lee at the same time got this big break because people were sort of able to put that in this sort of like, look, it's a black movie. Uh, and it's a it's a movie that we can sell to white people as like a black movie and you feel good about it. And his movie was so much about like his experience that they couldn't figure out how to sell it to white people. And that was his theory of why, like basically it just never got a theatrical release. Well, and do the right thing has like a lot of like pop sensibility to it as well. Like it has it like having that persistent soundtrack to it, like the way that it's kind of like cut together. It's like very punchy and fast. Like does this, it sounds to me like this kind of has that sort of like, like sort of like sickly sort of feeling where it's like everything just feels like it kind of like, like moves through you yeah no this is a this is much more of an art film it's a it's a it's a it definitely has makes you feel uncomfortable it makes you i mean it it is funny though and and it's um it's not a it's not plotting i didn't think i thought it was Mm -hmm. a very it definitely had a real music video sort of uh you know charm but it is dark and weird uh, in a lot of places and isn't holding your hand or making you feel like, uh, you know, because, yeah, Do the Right Thing has a very, and I only am comparing them because he, you know, they came out the same year and he compared them in that interview. Um, they're not really about similar things, um, but, um, th- yeah, Do the Right Thing definitely had a, a, a sort of swinging for, yeah, like you say, like a pop sensibility. Um, and this movie does not. <laughs> uh, it's a very weird movie. And in places sort of looks like a, like a PBS documentary, like a lot of like black box theater like cuts where the camera's just like spinning around people and stuff. Um, but it, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, it's definitely something I wish I had heard of, you know, something that I feel like should be nearly as well regarded as something like something like do the right thing uh it's it's definitely a strange movie huh yeah i gotta i would like to check this out yeah um it's interesting it's definitely an art movie though so it's like you know (laughs) yeah i don't know if i like it (laughs) (laughs) um but i was i I love to see something that uh you know it, it like it, it it feels like in places is directed by terry gilliam like there's a lot of like weird angles and makes making you feel like claustrophobic in like little scenes of like an yeah. office or whatever as i say it was making me think of the way you were describing it was making me think of like um like fear and loathing and um yeah it's definitely more of like a brazil 12, type is movie. it 12 monkeys how many monkeys is it yes yeah, 12 <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so i i, I highly well, recommend checking it out um i'm feeling a little insecure though because you you asked where we're watching and i said the princess switch too and then you said <laughs> A Sundance winner from 1990. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's go again. I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah. well, I was watching eight. I was watching. I was watching Fellini's Eight and a Half. And yeah, I yeah. That the, um, no, I joke. Um, although, I, yeah, I'm I, sorry. I, I, I want to check that out. That sounds great. I, I, I like. I like movies like that. Little. little uh, yeah, because you're, like you're a film school bro. Like I went to I film a, school I as am well. A fil- I am a film school guy. Yeah, I'll always be a film school guy. I. Uh, 
you can't unfilm school yourself. Once you're in film school, you no. have that mentality for the rest of your life. And I feel like you lose a sort of you lose a sort of touch with with the broader populist sense because of going to film school where I I am unsure most of the time if something is too weird. I just have no sense of where that line is. <laughs> like whenever I should, like when we watched You the Living, I don't know if people are going to be like that's a weird movie or if it's like kind of a normal movie. I just <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's always hard. It's sometimes difficult to calibrate. But um, I went to a. I think I went to a maybe a more a more commercial film school. Strangely enough, oh, interesting. Like I think U University of Texas Film School. I think has a tradition of being a little bit more um, in the quote unquote real world. Mostly because it's a public university and it's it's not like you know give us a hundred thousand dollars to make yeah. an art film kind of deal. It's usually it's a little more a little more practical than that. Although I think both of those are good. I don't want to be anti intellectual. I, I think the art <laughs> world is perfectly is perfectly good and useful and, and great. Um <laughs> uh yeah don't go to college uh, <laughs> uh but anyway uh sorry to sorry if I um if I got too uh pr um snobby with my recommendation but i, I had no, been I, meaning was to watch I, I was doing the, i was doing the, i was doing, the, I, was doing a, a, I was i was mugging i was doing a simple country lawyer bit um so ignore me. i'm just a simple country lawyer i believe right. i believe that's what they call that's what they call smarm is what i was doing yeah yeah <laughs> all right well let's get into the movie we all watched uh burn after reading by the cohen brothers uh, this is a movie that came out right as soon as the Coen brothers were getting back into the swing of things as far as as far as I can tell. Um, they had a, a big two whiffs in a row uh, with uh, Lady Killers and uh, Intolerable Cruelty. And mm -hmm. then it was No Country for Old Men and Burn After Reading and A Serious Man like one year after the other. Yeah, and then, no, but then True Grit and Inside Loon David, like it's pretty much, the, this is like a very good streak for them. Yeah, big, all of a sudden they just had four great movies every year. Um, and this was sort of what I, the way I remember it is that no country was this big return to form for them. Um, it won Oscar or was nominated for Oscars at the very least. And then this and serious man were sort of like, Oh wow. Two little art house movies. And then true grit was another big, like one that people liked. Um, and I remember burn after reading being a little bit like under marketed, um, and sort of, I don't remember a lot of talk. You know, people were like, "Yep, it's fine." They're kind of back yeah. on their grind. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's really, really hard to market black comedies. I feel like oh, that sure. every black comedy ever, and most, almost all black comedies are like, they're, it's a really hard genre to pull off. I think from a marketing perspective, nobody ever knows how to market them. Mm -hmm. Because like, it I is think that's just very inherent funny. In the genre. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I do remember the trailer of like Brad Pitt with his big hair and doing his weird dances and um, George Brad Clooney Pitt is running just around fucking, mugging. Is, is absolutely brilliant in this movie. <laughs> He's I mean, so it, good. Is a, it is it is the role he was put on this this earth to play. I mean, it is it plays to every one of his strengths in every single scene he does. He's fucking hilarious. <laughs> I was thinking the he same is, thing he, too he about um, the movie. Uh, John Malkovich, I felt the same way about in this. It's oh like he was, he was born to be this man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just the, the sassy. The performances are 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 all are all good. I mean, uh, I mean, yeah. there's not a single weak link in the movie. Yeah. Uh, having said that, I'm not a huge fan of the movie. <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, so let's let's quickly recap the broad strokes of the movie. Um, the movie is about CIA agent um, John Malkovich, whose name is <laughs> Cox. His his Oswald name's Osborne. Cox. Co Osborne or Oswald? Osborne, Oswald. Osborne Cox. And uh, he gets fired for no reason. Or, uh, he gets demoted um, from his position uh, and is sent to state, I guess, the State Department bureaucratic yeah. bullshit. He flips out and is like, fuck you. Um, and then his wife is cheating on him. Um, and they're through a bunch of sort of... Uh, almost like slapstick vaudevillian style things. She, as she's divorcing him and he's writing a memoir, she leaves his like financial documents uh, or the, the secretary of her lawyer leaves the financial documents and his memoir on the, in the gym uh, where Brad Pitt and um, Francis McDormand work and they find it and think it's some sort of 
thing. Secret special yeah. spy stuff, yeah. some sort of intel, it's the whatever. It's raw data. It's the raw intelligence. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they uh, think that they can use it to get money out of this guy. Um, they basically want, they think that they'll get a reward, like a dog, um, like a finder's fee or something. But then they basically just full on blackmail him. And he's like, fuck you. That doesn't make any sense. Um, which it doesn't. Meanwhile, and like um, through their own through their own trying to play spy games and like try to not seem like like they're trying not to seem like they're out of their depth in the situation. So they're like playing all the spy games that they see in movies. And so because they play all these spy games, they accidentally like do real alarming spy stuff that just <laughs> makes this whole thing become much more uh, dangerous than it was. <laughs> Right. And then uh, so the George Clooney is the guy that Tilda Swinton is sleeping with and he works for the Treasury Department um, and he is very paranoid and thinks the CIA is following him for some reason. Um, And he uh, they aren't. His wife is getting a divorce from him because she's cheating on him. And he um, in his panic. uh, So they devise a plan to actually get more secrets from Oswald Cox and they go to his house brad pitt does and in that sort of scuffle george clooney kills brad pitt make raising the stakes even higher um and then the cia actually gets involved realizes what's sort of what's happening uh and then um i get a little muddy here (laughs) yeah i mean the rest of it is basically just that um uh, everything kind of spirals out of control because John Malkovich kills another person and then a CIA agent kills John Malkovich to stop him from killing the other person. Uh, everything starts going haywire. Uh, George Clooney tries to flee the country. Um, yeah, to go to Venezuela. Yeah, what's her name? Um, Frances McDormand is trying to sell all of Osborne's stuff to the <laughs> Russian embassy, uh, to the sorry, to the Russian cultural attache, which is very funny. <laughs> Uh, and then, uh, yeah, the CIA comes in and they're like, all right, let's just put an end to this. Let everybody go. Or the people who still are involved in this, just pay them off and we'll be done with this. And then that's the end of the movie, basically. Right. Uh, so uh, the movie, uh, I think the Coen brothers, they basically said that they were trying to be like, oh, we've never done like a spy movie. So what if we do a spy movie, like a Jason Bourne style movie where everyone's an idiot? Uh, and that's sort of the premise of the movie where just nothing is really happening, but because everyone's stupid, they, they sort of get in over their heads and people die for no reason. Um, so you said you didn't like the movie, Adam. Uh, I don't, I don't actively dislike it. Um, uh I thought it was, you know, it's like a lot of Coen brothers films where it's, it's, you know, it's deliberately kind of, it, it lacks pathos. It's, it's some, you have to sort of sit with it for a while. Yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, it's it's it, you know it's like uh, the Big Lebowski is a, is a detective story where where everyone's an idiot and and he never solves anything. Everything happens to him. That's why it's funny. Yeah. Um, and this is a spy thriller where everyone's um, uh, a horny idiot or or uh, glib and and so everyone's self motivated in a very sort of specific way. Um, but you know. I don't know. I just they didn't think it quite clicked, mo- mostly because they're, um, you know, there's a, there's a few good gags in it, but they're sort of not quite enough. It's a very short movie. Um, it's so you know, short it's for over, them, yeah. It's barely over an hour and a half. Right. Um, and, you know, it's a fine line between, at least this is, it's a fine line between um, opaque or, 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 or you know, un- an uncomfortableness and a dick so, uh, sort of not having a, a, a real ending like if you oh, have right, set yeah. up and nothing <laughs> nothing really pays off and it's like and which was you know that's a feature in a lot of coen brothers movies frankly and it's like i don't know if you're not gonna have a payoff i get that but it seems like i don't know it's a fine line between that as a sort of choice and that is a is the fact that we have this funny setup but never really thought really where we were going with it or why the movie exists. right like, yeah it's that's not quite fair. clear what because it's an overtly, it's a movie that deals in politics that has absolutely nothing to say about politics, which is fine, <laughs> it, uh, you know, as is its want. But, um, you know, it's just sort of... Um, yeah, it, it has a, it and, has a and, very, sense, uh, very similar ending, actually, I thought, to um, the movie they did right after this, which is uh, A Serious Man, which is just like 
there no agent no one has any agency no one is able to really do anything uh but the move that movie is a very spiritual existential movie um yeah i really and, liked the serious man and that it's movie really works movie. yeah cause it's, i think it's my second favorite coen brothers movie um after man who wasn't there um and that movie really works they i think they do that a lot where it's just like well there is no ending that's not how life works and that's sort well, of the I mean, point no or something. country for old men is that way yeah it's, yeah, it's a nihil- yeah. It's, they make they make movies that at least in first glance are very nihilistic mm-hmm. i mean this this is a deeply nihilistic movie it's a it's a it's a it's a <laughs> or at least again on first appearances i i know that there are there are other layers there but it, it is a movie that's contemptuous of 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 the human condition and bordering on misanthropic um and but it's of course it's sort of played for laughs because it's it's funny yeah i mean there's many there's many farce elements in it yeah everything's very heightened george it Clooney appears a... to be on amphetamines <laughs> it was a funny movie a, a much funnier movie than i than i remembered because i remember it's like uh i don't know what did it came out when i was like in like college or high school and it was a uh, very um I-, I remember trying really hard to pay attention in the theater of like wait i have to remember what's going on I'll, like they don't you know the movie just kind of chugs along is like and this is happening and this is happening uh and i remember being so distracted by like trying to hold on to what was actually happening that i missed a lot of the jokes i think um i mean brad pitt was always funny but like this time just everything George Clooney was doing was making me laugh. <laughs> um, yeah. Just, just yeah, he's, like, he's, he's really good in it. He's a very, he's a, he's a good actor, a good comedy actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something I realized this viewing that I had never really thought of before is how um, really uh, realized every character is in this. Mm-hmm. Everybody yeah. has like some special thing to them that kind of makes them feel more real. Like, I realized that um, uh, is it Richard Jenkins' character? The yeah, the Richard boss? Jenkins is wonderful. Wonderful, yeah. Um, he's he's very good in this, but I realized like I always kind of laugh at him when I watch this movie because it's like you know he's like I'm not here as a representative of hard bodies. He has this very like specifically <laughs> yeah. professional sort of personality type. But yeah, then there's that scene in the line. bar that has completely escaped me in the past where he's just like, yeah, I was a Greek Orthodox priest for a decade. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not there for any reason except to be like, by the way, this is a person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I, and then he like left for some reason. It's like not, I, I, did, did anyone else take that as they were like implying he was a pedophile or something? Or like hit? <laughs> oh, no, I, I thought he just quit to like pursue a happier life, which happened oh. to be being the manager of Hard Bodies. <laughs> I he was just like, it's complicated, and I don't, I, all I know about priests is that they fuck children, so. Right. Well, <laughs> that's not a, I, I think, don't think it's the I Greek Orthodox the Catholic to... priest. I mean, yeah, oh, I think the sure, Greeks yeah. have been stained with that cliche. I mean, not to say they don't do it, but. Yeah, I don't think, they have I, their own cliches, not, like I, I being gay. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, I thought this movie was, uh, funnier than I remember, but also far less insightful than I remember because I, uh, my, my, is when we were talking about doing this movie, we were talking about, uh, sort of how it sort of plays into the tropes of the like forever bumbling CIA or whatever. What's weird about this movie is the CIA is almost not in the movie. (laughs) Right. Um, a lot of the things that you think are actual spies are mostly just like private investigators or, um, you know, the random guy from the treasury who has a gun and just kills somebody for no reason because he's paranoid. Uh, the CIA tends to be a little bit, you know, just these two idiots in an office, um, which I think it, I think it still does. I don't think the, the, the Coen brothers meant to make this claim, but they, oh, I think, no, no, no. I think, I, don't they think absolutely they do, I think they absolutely do play into that trope though, of just like, well, they're yeah. bureaucrats, so they must be idiots like any other person playing the game show of politics. Yeah. It, the, 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 the extent to which like the bumbling CIA trope is, is in this. Cause again, it's, it's, it's used now as shorthand for bumbling, bumbling government, bumbling CIA. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is just like, burn after reading was a documentary. 
Um, <laughs> I don't think that was really their intention because nor, nor do I think their intention was to like do bumbling police with the big Lebowski or bumble. I mean, it's sort of a thing they've done a bunch of times. Right. Yeah. I think that, I think that the extent to which like, yeah, I mean, it's, this is a, you know, this is the final year of the Bush administration. This is like CI rendition, CI torture are all over the news. And of course this is not the Coen brothers, you know, um, area of expertise or what they do or their thing. But then you have a, 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 a you know, the, the CIA is played kind of sinisterly, but they're mostly reacting to everything. They, they, right. they, they don't really know what's going on. They don't, they can't identify people for some reason, which is bizarre. Um, <laughs> yeah. I found that very strange and, that they're just like, we have no idea. <laughs> yeah. And everything sort of happens around them. So to the extent to which, again, I don't think intentionally, but I do think unintentionally because that's their genre. Like, it does play into a, a trope, which is one of those things that I think, um, you know, I've, I've written about a lot. We've done a lot on a show, which is the hipster inclination to think that the CIA is um, because, you know, someone scammed uh, legacy of ashes in college. Um, yeah. <laughs> that like the, the, the CIA is, in fact, a bunch of bumbling morons. Um, when that's not true at all. <laughs> uh, and in fact, they have pretty much total information awareness and have, have since at least the early push years. And yeah, see, um, what's interesting is I kind of, but you know, see I know it's a comedy way. Right? What? I kind of didn't see this as, as like a bumbling CIA thing. I was watching it like kind of very aware of the fact that the CIA and this does seem like they're completely in control. Like they don't know what's happening. But every time that they get any like hard information, they're like, oh, well, then that's not that bad. You know what I mean? Like yeah. every time <laughs> something comes to them where they're like, what's what's his clearance level? They're like, C. And he's like, yeah, oh, whatever. Uh, I don't <laughs> like, I, I, let I them don't do whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't think it's explicit, but I do think it's a it's definitely a part of it because, you know, John Malkovich's character is CIA and he's sort of bumbling the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a drinking think, guy. Yeah, and I think I think it's um, it's again it's not it's not central to the story, and it's not really central to I think um, the sort of genre they were going for. I mean, because it's a genre they've done across different things, but I definitely think has its as it's manifested as a sort of pop cultural shorthand, um, especially in recent years. Like it's manifested as a like a, a shorthand for the people behind the scenes or don't really know what's going on. And they're mm-hmm. all just a bunch of drunk, drunk, horny, uh, sort of sloppy idiots. Right. And the um, thing that, so the, no, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's something that is central to the film at all. The central to the film is the idea that, um, people are, you know, <laughs> people are shitheads and they're going <laughs> to do shithead things to cover. It's all about covering your ass. Like a, right. a lot of, right. a lot of Coen brothers themes is like, you try to cover your ass and things spiral out of control. I mean, that's part right. of it, right? Like this, <laughs> a simple, pl- a, a simple plan, um, um, uh, that sort of goes awry and everything goes and everything goes wrong. And, right. um, blood simple was the same way too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I don't think it was necessarily what they were going for, but it did sort of play into that trope, especially in the context in which the movie came out. Um, right, which is political context. The police, because I always find people who make movies about politics that never talk about politics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily, I think, sinister or wrong, but it's it's very it's very interesting to me because it's you know it's how you sort of get into a certain art house crowd. It's it's what it's what it's it's I think a, a general philosophy of most filmmakers is that like you want to avoid. It, that those kinds of subjects and to the extent you talk about them, it's, it's done for farce. It's done for laughs. Um, and I think, I think, I think it was interesting that George Clooney was in the movie Syriana a few years prior to this. Yeah. I was going to mention that. Prior to this. Had a similar beard. Um, <laughs> and, um, that movie is interesting cause it's, it's as far as like the depictions of the CIA goes, I would say it's one of the more critical, and it was it was not done with CIA help, which is unusual. Most CIA movies are. Yeah. Um, this but probably but wasn't. It, <laughs> but no, but it very much was. Um, it very much played up a lot of the uh, CIA as always on their heels, catching up to like the big bag Hezbollah and Iranians. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's even a oh. scene where he's where he's in where he's in you know Beirut, and there's the. There's the Hezbollah, Hezbollah militias on top of top of roofs, and I'm like, okay, I've been to Beirut. There's like, it's a Starbucks and a McDonald's, and like, there's a soldier. 
they're all clay. I, don't know, it's very, I thought it's, they're all clay houses and <laughs> all, all covered in dirt yeah. and stuff. Yeah, but um, but no, I I don't think it was central to the movie, but I did think it was. It's it's as a as a sort of pop culture shorthand, it's become part of its 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 mythos, and I I find that interesting because you know they're they're quite literally the CIA to the extent they're in the movie is sitting in a desk and they're kind of getting you know they're getting folders and, and notes and mail and emails and they're reacting to things um which i which i thought was interesting um but they also you know dispose of dead bodies so they're not exactly good either right i mean it's interesting i always think about like what is the other option you know if you're making a movie that that involves like this kind of this kind of stuff it's like either oh well obviously you can do like a hagiography like the 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 good shepherd or something but or zero uh, dark 30 or zero well yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then like the other danger i feel like is making them be like this sort of like all powerful um you know shadow organization where everybody is like ex- like incredibly uh you know omnipotent um but i mean i guess i never really see that but i, I wonder if yeah there's... that's not that's not that's not a thing people go for Mm-hmm. Um, it's mostly taken for granted, and I think a lot of it has does have to do with with, with Timothy Weiner's book, a Legacy of Ashes, which really did plant in people's heads that the CIA is largely uh, ineffective or incompetent. Which, um, after the Church and Rockefeller committees in the 1970s, was the CIA's own argument. Coincidentally enough, there's actually there's actually a segment in. Um, and David Talbot's book, The Devil's Chessboard, about Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles. Uh-huh, which I'm uh, reading. Which yeah. I just finished reading. And um, I, I'm paraphrasing here. I could probably look it up if you'd like. But basically, when the church committee revealed a lot of the CIA programs, assassination programs in the 50s and 60s, because the church committees were in 75, 76, 77, mm-hmm. um, they, the argument they, they gave was that Actually, we had a lot of plans to kill people, but we never like could do it successfully. So, because they had all this evidence of like motive and intent, but they were like, we never actually did it. Like, we were going to kill Patrice Lumumbia, but actually, you know, his enemies got to him first. We were going to try to. That was always their excuse that they were actually just a bunch of bumbling idiots looking for the light switch. Right. We were actually um, we, we were trying to do it, but we suck actually. And that was the same thing exactly. with him. Which, M- which is the ultimate like hipster liberal sort of cap cop out, right? Because you could you, you, you say. <laughs> Because you, you don't want to say the CIA is good because that's that's uncool. You're not allowed to and say that. And you don't want to say that. Yeah, you don't really <laughs> want to reconcile with the fact that like they do a lot of evil stuff and continue to this day to do a lot of clandestine uh, activities in the global south or, or uh-huh. drone program or whatever name it. So you sort of cut. You sort of split the difference by saying, "Oh, they're evil, but they're just dumb and bad, so it's not really important." Right. And then the same thing um, with MK Ultra and Chaos, which was you know. Oh yeah, we did all this research and spent millions of dollars on, you know, trying to figure out how to, you know, wipe people's memories and all this stuff, but none of it worked and we've actually learned nothing. Yeah, the, <laughs> the thing of, the, the thing about MK Ultra that people don't quite appreciate and uh, Talbot's book does a good job. He doesn't say this explicitly, but he basically describes it, which is that it's like, oh, it's this funny like mind control program they had and they they ran these experiments on people in the 60s many most of which were involuntary and they had to end up paying nine different lawsuits to the victims families once it became you know revealed by by congressional committees in the 70s but it like it failed and it it didn't work (laughs) yeah it didn't work at all if you if you read the fine print of mk ultra the mind control was sort of extra it was it was a lark they were that alan dulles was on that was not necessarily uh, it wasn't that credible and this and there's a lot of there was a lot of snake oil around uh so the psychological profession back then and claims uh-huh. that were made a lot of freudian junk science uh, a lot of which was sexist um in fact alan Dulles' own wife was was uh, uh alan Dulles subjected his own son to mk ultra yeah because he was he, he was injured in korea um uh-huh. but the thing the mk ultra was was a torture program it was a program about using chemicals and, and psychology to come up with more effective ways of extracting information. All the Manchurian candidate shit was for spy thrillers and for the media. But if you actually look at the real experiments they conducted and you actually like read what they did, it's mostly just a way of perfecting torture techniques. And indeed, many of the techniques developed under MKUltra today exist in the Army field, field manual about how to torture people. 
right. it's it's it, the science the, the research that was done did have practical application but it had to do with it had to do with torture techniques to extract information from people and like that's why when people say oh they laugh at it it's mk ultra was sort of a, a you know mind control thing and and they use paranormal you know paranormal stuff to try to you know research you know talking to animals and all this kind of wacky stuff that makes headlines. <laughs> like if, you, if, you, if, if, you, if you usually look under the surface, what they're doing is pretty practical stuff. It's, it's, it's using a combination of, of, of chemicals, which at that point were cutting edge chemicals. Right. Um, to see if you can, you know, the, the, the line between getting people to do what you want, we call that quote unquote mind control and using techniques and, and pressure points and chemicals to, to get information out of them is a fine line. Yeah. Or pressuring them to do stuff that they may not remember. Um, Yeah. And so like that, the whole, the, the the constant refrain of like, we tried to do this evil thing, but we failed is, 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 is basically a, a, um, it's a convenient sort of stopgap for liberals to, 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 to justify things we do know and have known since the, since the church committee hearings Mm -hmm. and the revelations from that and other leaks in the, since the eighties and nineties, versus this idea that we still uh, we still do support a CIA and we still vote for people to support the CIA and we want the CIA to to sort of exist in its current kind of woke iteration um and now it's just a bunch of analysts you know sitting around listening to 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 to, to, to al-qaeda chatter and that's pretty much pretty much all they do they don't do you know to the extent they do anything maybe they muck it up right yeah Um, Uh, And what's funny about this movie is that they like, they never even give a reason for literally anything they do at all. (laughs) And the sort of end of the movie is like, well, what do we do? What what, what do we learn from this? And they say, well, I I guess we won't do it again. And they're like, well, I don't even know what we did. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, when they get into that kind of um, that fallacy of like, oh, well, they're not actually even trying to do anything. They just get themselves into these bad situations. Sort of. And again, I I do think it's incidental. I don't think it was something that was deliberate, but it is, it's, 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 it's such a trope that I think it kind of played into it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, because it is, it's just a trope at this point. It's not something that people think much about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It permeates the culture in such a way at this point that it's like, it's almost just the language with which you speak about these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the worst thing you can do in the world is be painted as a conspiracy theorist. It's a career ender. Right. And so people, (laughs) I love not having a career. (laughs) The way you signal that you're not a conspiracy, you know, sort of dreaded capital C capital T conspiracy theorist is you constantly talk about how stupid everyone is and it's intelligence. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a career Mm -hmm. signaling device. You say like, Oh, well, you know, look at all this waste, look at all this money the army spent wasting this and all this, and the CIA, like, you know, tried to arm these rebels, but they failed. And it's like, well, not really. I mean, they kind of <laughs> succeeded. Like, their goal is to destabilize the government. They they succeeded. It's like, people say Iraq was a failure. It's like, it wasn't a failure. The goal was to get rid of the threat to U.S. and Israeli hegemony in the region. They did it. The fact mm-hmm. that it's a fucking hellscape now, or the fact that, you know, they say, oh, it's a win for Iran. It's like, what, because they sell Iranian cigarettes? That's like the big thing. Like, I mean, <laughs> they, no, they had a threat that was existential that was potentially developing, you know, uh, weapons of vast destruction or whatever, which is to say weapons that can challenge U.S. Uh, power in the region. And yeah, they mass. fucking whacked the guy. And then they moved on. <laughs> the fact that it's a sh- the fact that it's chaos afterwards is irrelevant to their objective. <laughs> yeah. Like, we're pretty good at those things, actually. We're good at eliminating threats. And when people say, oh, well... Because you see the bumbling narrative with like, well, keeping the peace and, you know, we let Libya descend. It's like, they don't give a fuck about that. That's not the goal. The goal is to get us to get, get rid of a strong man who threatened us. And once that guy's gone, the rest is, uh, you know, yeah. maybe some goody two shoe State Department types will care, but no one else is really going to give a shit. We got the drugs and no we one else, got no what we wanted. No one, at the American, no one at the American Enterprise Institute or the, or the you know. <laughs> they're not they're not waking up in cold sweats in the middle of the night going oh you're having chaos this is horrible they the don't center of, yeah Nero Tandon is so nervous about what might happen Olivia's <laughs> <laughs> oil yeah yeah all right uh, so I think that this movie is still a fun movie I don't think it's the Coen Brothers best movie but I I think it's a, a fairly funny f- film and and I and I uh, it's definitely worth watching for uh, Brad Pitt's performance. And, uh, yeah, like you said, Richard Jenkins before everyone's really great in this movie. Um, and it's got funny stuff in it. Um, but it's not one I would start with. I don't think so, but I I think I'd recommend it. Jeremy, would you recommend it? 
I would absolutely recommend it. I think it's a very good time. I think it's definitely not the Coen Brothers movie to start with if you don't know any of their movies. I mean, it wouldn't be a bad one to start with, though, either. It's it's just a good good time overall. I mean, <laughs> it's not really indicative of their uh, their vibe. Like, you're not going to learn much about them as filmmakers. Yeah, I think the thing I'm a little dis... If, I'm a, if I have any disappointment is that it's not very inventive looking. Like, a lot of yeah. their movies have so much, like, amazing, like, formal filmmaking. Hudsucker Proxy, you know, Brother or Art Thou. And, yeah. you know, like, they have all these beautiful, interesting visions of 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 worlds. Uh, m- the Man Who Wasn't There, especially. Um, and this movie is sort of a very straightforward-looking uh just a bunch of bland shots of dc uh and you know there's some cool some cool sequences but mostly it's a very like you know this could have been directed by anybody with their with their script really Um, yeah that's the thing the thing to watch it for is the performances um and and the writing it's good writing the the jokes are very very sound yeah exactly um so yeah a mild recommendation. It's a fun movie. Uh, what about you, Adam? I don't know. Uh, I'm on the fence. I'm fence sitting. I don't usually do that, but I fence sit because I do think there's a ton there that's great, and I just think that the ending is. is a, I'm sorry to say because I know it's it's sort of a attack, attacking the Coen Brothers is sacrilegious, and I think for pretty good reasons. But I do, <laughs> I do think the ending was. I do think I do think the ending was a cop out. I don't think that was a creative choice. I think they sort of had all these threads, had nowhere really to go with it. And so they went with this, like, uh, this kind of semi-nihilistic ending as a way of wrapping everything up in a way that was not very satisfactory yeah. and not very earned. Because, you know, the the ending of you know, Country is also very unsatisfactory, but it feels like it's unsatisfactory for a thematic reason. Right. This feels unsatisfactory because they sort of got bored with the movie halfway through making it. It it definitely feels that that way where they're just like, whatever, everyone, you know, some people get their way and some people don't, who gives a shit? (laughs) Uh, Which is, I mean, in a way, kind of funny. You know, there's 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 an audience for that. A lot of my friends like kind of like that about them. They don't pander to the audience in a way that feels uh, unearned, but, you know, they could have, I think they could have built a little bit more and made it a little more earned, but that. Totally. I, I think it's a fair criticism uh, of the, I don't, I, per, I, per, uh, per, uh, pearls before swine. What do, what do yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's the movie. Thanks so much for listening to a generation loss. Uh, you know, I'm Bryn. You can follow me at kinematography. My other shows, BP Bledis. Uh, I stream on Twitch. It's twitch.tv slash dull care. Jeremy's at Jeremy thunder. You can watch his other show balling out super, uh, Jeremy thunder on YouTube and Twitter. Um, and uh, Adam, Adam Johnson from Citations Needed, do you want to plug anything else? Uh, no. No. Uh, read, <laughs> read his... I have a singular plug. Yeah. Also read your stuff at Fair and, and the Appeal and stuff. Uh, I haven't written there in, in, in quite a time. I'm now only a full-time podcaster with other wow. projects on the side, but I've, I have nothing new to report or nothing interesting except for my podcast, which is... Uh, which is uh, which my, is citations job me. now. Yeah. Well, yes. that's awesome. That's great. Uh, it's a great show. Uh, thanks for being here. It was great to have you. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Great, and uh, we will see you next time. Bye.